Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Claire McInerney today from WFIU and WTIU. Uh, Governor Mike Pence is one of more than two dozen governors who has suspended resettlement programs for Syrian refugees in the wake of terrorist attacks in Paris. And this week on Noon Edition, we're going to be speaking with a couple of local experts about what that decision means and uh, take uh, a look at this larger global story behind the Syrian refugee crisis. We have Two guests with us in the studio. Olga Kalinzidou is with us. She is a director of undergraduate studies for the Department of International Studies at Indiana University. And Brett Bowles, the associate, as an associate professor of French studies at Indiana University. He studies modern and contemporary France. You can ask your, you can give us a call uh, to ask your questions or join the conversation at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So thanks for all of you for being here today. Claire, it's good to be with you. Yeah, thank thanks. you. I wanted to start um, with the attacks in France, and uh, Brett, maybe you can talk a little bit about this. How did the, you know, ISIS has been around for a while, and this is not the first um, violent attack we've seen. How did it happen? How did it happening in Paris kind of change the global perspective of ISIS and the conversation around their terrorism acts? Well, I think the first important difference to note is that there's this is sort of a different mode of terrorism from the one that we saw here in the U.S. on September 11th, 20, uh, 2001. <clears throat> um, the, the really scary uh, dimension of, of the Paris attacks um, is that these are so-called homegrown terrorists. These are largely, uh, at least four of the seven um, attackers are known to be natural-born citizens of either France or Belgium, um, Muslims who have grown up in Europe, um, become radicalized, uh, gone and gotten training uh, somewhere in the Middle East, and then come back to their to their home countries in order to carry out these attacks. Um, so, so this is a slightly different sociological profile from the attackers that that um, Al Qaeda and and ISIL have used previously. And just to talk a little bit more about the French context, going back a few years in in 2012, there there were a number of attacks in Toulouse carried out by a single individual, a guy whose name was Mohamed Mera. And he had very much the same profile as uh, those of the attackers we, we just saw in Paris. Uh, he had grown up in a um, in, in sort of a, a, a minority ghetto um, around Toulouse. Uh, he had um, been radicalized while he was in French prison. He had gone, gotten training in the Middle East, and came back and carried out attacks, notably against a Jewish a Jewish school um, and several um, French Muslim police officers. That same profile was shared by those who attacked the Charlie Hebdo offices um, and the, the kosher grocery store in, in January. Um, Saeed and Sharif Kouachi had very much the same profile, and um, uh, Amidi Kuribadi also did. So th this is something that, that points to um, the need for not only um, different policing strategies, but for uh, a difference in the way France, Belgium, and certain other European countries um, try to integrate and respect the civil rights of Muslims. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've heard a lot about <clears throat> the culture before these attacks in France toward Muslims and um, uh, you know other people. Will you explain that a little bit of what the climate was like for a Muslim growing up in France? Yes, and this is this is one of the the, the really important um, points that that needs to be understood. Many many Muslims living in France feel as though there has been a criminalization uh, of their religion. Just to give one very concrete example, it is actually illegal in France for Muslim women to enter public spaces, specifically public schools, wearing any kind of a, of a face covering, what the French would call the integral veil or the, the niqab, and certainly a burqa falls under the same category. And any woman who does that is subject to a 150 euro fine per incident. And there have been a number of cases where Muslim girls have been suspended or in some cases expelled from French public high schools or French public universities for wearing face or body coverings. Um, the other part of the French law that really speaks to how 
France views Muslim culture as, in a sense, being fundamentally incompatible with French values is the fact that any uh, adult who is found guilty of forcing a Muslim minor to wear any kind of body or face covering is subject to a fine of up to 60,000 euros and an entire year in prison. So this is part of a larger problem um, that France has with its Muslim community. Many Muslims feel and often rightly so, especially those who are coming from uh, disenfranchised neighborhoods, that they don't have the same equality of opportunity that's afforded to uh, white French citizens. And it's also very important to remember that we're, we're talking not really about immigrants here. We're talking about natural-born French citizens whose families have been in France for two, three, in some cases, mm-hmm. four generations. Olga, is France unique in, when it comes to European nations, in your view? Um, I don't. I don't. Th- it, it is uh, France is unique in terms of its policies uh, against um, specific religious uh, minorities, but I don't think it is unique in terms of how immigrants are treated across uh, Europe. Certain countries have more anti-immigrant sentiment than others, and we have certainly seen over the last decade, at least, a a gradual ascent of anti-immigrant feeling and also a gradual ascent of right-wing ideology. And that is very much uh, part and parcel of uh, the political climate in Europe right now. Different countries, though, have different levels of tolerance. And I, I think we have to be very careful to characterize everybody and put them under the same uh, rubric. Um, Certainly, Southern European countries, um, mine included, uh, has and yours is uh, Greece. Greece, Greece, yes, have had their share of troubles. Uh, but I think the discussion in those countries um, turns more towards management of numbers of uh, immigrants rather than the particular establishment of very. Uh, specific policies on how the immigrants should dress or behave. Mm -hmm. Um, That is very unique in France, and I have to say many European countries do not understand it, although ideologically it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I, I will leave that ideological discussion to Brett (laughs) because um, I may be transgressing here (laughs) due to my expertise. No, that's good. Thank you. Um, I wanted to to play a, a clip or have our producers play a a clip. Um, we, Claire asked about ISIS and sort of how the view of ISIS has maybe emerged after this. And uh, Senator Dan Coates uh, had a speech on the Senate floor this week, and he talked a little bit about uh, the sentiment that ISIS might be contained in certain areas. President Obama, in a shockingly dismissive tone, doubled down on his so-called strategy to deal with this global threat. And what has his strategy to date accomplished? Well, ISIS has expanded into more than half a dozen countries. They're not contained, as the president said. Ask the people in Paris if ISIS is contained. Ask the people who have been subject to attacks inspired by ISIL across the world, is ISIS contained? I don't think so. So just to get a reaction from both of you about that, you know, we're you know, based here in the United States, and I think there's a lot of news about ISIS and ISIL, but we've not, really, we've not had those attacks here. What's the view of that organization? How, how frightening is this threat, in, I mean, obviously in France today, in Greece, in other European countries? I, I need to point to geography. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has been... Uh, blatantly interesting to me how this part of the world separates or can separate itself from the rest of the world. So issues that may appear out of proportion uh, in the United States uh, may be more contextualized in other parts of the world. And by that, I don't mean that we in the other countries in Europe or those of us who share borders with Middle Eastern countries do not have a fear about the spread of terrorist organization um, such as ISIS or other organizations in the past. Um, 
but it is a little bit more mediated by that geographic proximity. And I find the discussion uh, fascinating because of that. Uh, so I don't agree with uh, uh, Senator Coates. Um, whether ISIS or not has expanded, uh, we do not know. It certainly has intensified. Um, but I don't think that turning into diplomacy is a bad way of dealing with the world. Um, mm -hmm. Guns is not the only option mm -hmm. in this scenario. Right. Yeah, and I, for me, the, the speech is really, it, it's very much, it's a leading speech that doesn't really sort of draw the logical conclusions from the information that, that is being, the information being presented. And I think it's really, a, it's really a speech about solutions, right? I mean, he's sort of indignantly asking for a greater application of policing and military force. And this is a question that's that's absolutely relevant in it's it's relevant in the U.S. It's relevant in France and in virtually every other European country at this moment. And I, I think it would be silly to say that there is not a need for an application of military force in the Middle East. There's also it would also be silly to say that there's no need for uh, tighter policing methods. But if we believe that those are the only solutions to the problem and that, that, that ISIS or al-Qaeda or this, this type of insurgency is going to be defeated only through the plop, proper application of strategic or military force or policing measures, I think that's quite naive. And I think that diplomacy, as Olga said, has to be pursued. And we also have to think about uh, each country domestically in Europe as a whole has to think about its social and cultural policies. Um, and the, the best deterrent of all to terrorism, especially the, the homegrown variety of terrorism that we've seen recently in France, um, is for natural-born citizens to, to love and respect their country. And in order for that to happen, they have to feel included, they have to have equality of opportunity, and they have to feel that whatever cultural differences they have while uh, are, are being respected um, so that they will feel part of an inclusive national community. And if someone tries to radicalize them, they'll just say, no, I have no interest in doing that. I have a good life. I have equality of opportunity. Why would I want to attack the country that's provided me with, with, with that quality? Mm -hmm. You talked that you touched a little bit there on um, you know, prevention and this talk of policing. We're familiar with what happened after 9-11, how the way of life in America changed drastically. You go into a baseball game now, you're opening your purse. That was a big thing about these attacks in France is where they were carried out. Do you see France and other <clears throat> European countries making that radical change in terms of security and prevention that we did? I hope not. Uh, but I'm not a French citizen. And uh, some countries have more capacity, I think, of making those policing decisions and more effectively than others. And I know this sounds very relativist, uh, but I hope not. It, it goes against the idea of an open society. It goes against the idea of having open borders. So we have to always go back and forth and discuss how open we want to be and how much we want to police our um, people. Um, so I will say I hope not, uh, because I did not certainly enjoy being in the United States during that period of time and, and having my civil liber liberties continually being curtailed because of that isolated event. Brett, before you answer that, I just want to, to piggyback on, on what Olga said about the borders, because I, NPR had a story this morning, um, and one of the, the experts who was being interviewed talked about, you know, discussions of, you know, can we continue to leave the borders open so people can go from mm -hmm. one European country to another uh, without having checkpoints, and perhaps that may be in our future. Do you see that happening? Well, one of the first measures that, that was actually taken by the Hollande administration in France was, was essentially to close the borders and to, for, for French security forces to, as the French media you know, was saying very emphatically, take back control of their own borders. 
And politically, this is something that speaks to a larger, long-standing French sort of dissatisfaction with the European Union, which is France has always felt that that it's had to relinquish a lot of its own national sovereignty. And France is certainly not alone in that. But but I think this moment is going to be interesting to to, to see how things play out in the future. Um, will France and other countries, in the name of security, insist on taking back their sovereignty in certain ways, such as border policing? Um, the other important thing to, to note about France is that um, the, the French Constitution gives the French president the power to declare uh, a state of emergency. And the, uh, President Hollande did that almost immediately. Um, and that there are provisions in the, um, in the state of emergency similar to those of the Patriot Act that, that were passed you know, after the, the September 11th attacks, which essentially suspend normal constitutional protections governing search, seizure, arrest, detention, access to legal counsel, and so on. Now, one of the interesting developments is that just yesterday, um, the French National Assembly put together a bill that would extend the state of emergency, which is limited by the French Constitution to a, a term of 12 days. The bill currently before the National Assembly, which is expected to pass overwhelmingly, would extend the state of emergency to three months. And then presumably it could again be extended for another three-month period and perhaps um, hopefully not indefinitely. Has there ever been an extension like that before? Um, there, there was an extension actually in the last time a state of emergency was declared in France was in November 2005 when there were uh, riots in a number of um, suburbs around Paris and other large French cities. Um, and the initial state of emergency actually was extended one time during, uh, during that period. Um, Hollande has said publicly, although he supports extending the state of emergency, he will, uh, if conditions warrant, end it before the three-month term is up. And how are the conditions in this uh, state of emergency different or similar than you mentioned the Patriot Act, knowing that the terrorists in mm. this French attack were homegrown, where at 9-11 yeah. they weren't? Well, I think the, the first important point is that the the state of emergency was very clearly de, it was declared specifically so that the French police could go around and essentially arrest everyone who was on any type of a watch list. Um, and so it was the legal basis for French SWAT teams carrying out the kinds of raids that we saw uh, earlier this week. And there have been something like the the estimate the French media is giving is something like 600 different raids carried out in France, and probably a similar number of arrests. Um, and the, the, the question that needs to be asked, I think, is uh, how, are, how are the people arrested being interrogated? How are they being kept? Are they having any access to legal counsel? Um, and so these are all, these are all important, important questions. All right, if you want to join our program today, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. Outside of the Bloomington area, you can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Um, so let's turn to the refugee issue, mm -hmm. and uh, we'll have a question or two, and then we're going to have to take a short break. But the uh, So Governor Pence was probably about the second or the third governor. I think Michigan's Governor Snyder might have been number one, and the governor from Alabama might have been number two, and then Governor Pence jumped in fairly quickly to talk about how he was going to suspend resettlement programs for Syrian refugees. Um, from the, your, both of your perspectives, is that A, legal, B, a good idea? Olga? Well, I think that's that's quite unconstitutional. Uh, you know, the decision of who to admit in your own borders, at least in this part of the world, comes from the federal government and in other parts of the world comes from the central government. Um, I know this as a naturalized citizen. I had to go through a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of processes in order to become one. Um, whether it's a good idea Again, I'm going to talk in terms of being a naturalized citizen, and it, it wasn't my intention to be one. It happened, and I'm really happy that it happened. Um, this is a country whose main ideology is based on salad bowl, the melting pot, the whatever that uh, symbolic um, picture we have about America or the United States, let me say. 
it's about tolerance, it's about acceptance, and it's about um, allowing people to come in this country with their different beliefs and with their different cultures and um, make a better life for themselves and also enrich the social, economic, and cultural fabric of this country. So in terms of his decision, with all the respect to the governor, it tarnishes the reputation of the state. And it tarnishes the image that we want to put out in the world as a particular state within the United States. I don't think it's a good idea because every group that has come to this country has contributed something. Mm -hmm. um, some more, some less, but they all have contributed. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, yeah, that's one side of the coin of these decisions. I have the um, letter in front of me that. Uh, Governor Pence, along with 26 other governors, sent to the president today. Um, I'm just going to read a sentence. In the wake of this recent tragedy, until we can ensure the citizens of our states that an exhaustive review of all security measures has been completed and the necessary changes have been implemented, we respectfully request that you s suspend all plans to resettle additional Syrian refugees. That This is what the House addressed yesterday as well in terms of reviewing the uh, refugee mm -hmm. process. How does that currently work? How do we allow a Syrian refugee into the United States right now? It's a very complicated and lengthy process. Um, it takes about 18 to 24 months, and it starts at the point uh, where the refugee is actually registered with the United Nations Commission for Human Rights. They make the first decision, and they they base their decision on a particular criteria and quite stringent criteria. So that is a first process of elimination of potential, um, let's say, people who might pose harm uh, to societies uh, to which they apply for asylum uh, or refugee status. Uh, then they come through a thorough process in the United States, and I mean very, very thorough. I have not come here as a refugee, but my process took three years. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was not, uh, you go through background checks, you go through biometric information. Some of these things are rather demeaning. You go through an interview process, uh, which is very intimidating for a lot of people, especially if they lack the language skills for that. But you're provided with assistance uh, to go through the interview process. And then I think for the refugees, there are several other hurdles to which I'm not particularly acquainted with. But 18 to 24 months, these are not people that are going to come in tomorrow. Sure, but a lot of these governors are citing um, FBI Director James Coney's statement that said there are gaps in this and things could happen. Are you guys familiar with the gaps he's referring to and where these potential pitfalls could be? No, I'm not familiar with those gaps, but there is gaps in giving immigrant status or allowing someone to become a citizen as well. Um, this is not a foolproof process. It is a very thorough process, as I said, something that other countries, especially European countries in the margins of Europe, have yet still to develop. Mm -hmm. So I really, and it might, it might sound naive, but I don't think the United States has very lax immigration policies or very lax um, procedures. Brett, quick answer. Yeah. Uh, yes, quick one of the things that came out of our town hall meeting we had here um, in Global and International Studies on Wednesday, there were some experts there on, on policy who, who were unanimous in saying that they believe what the governors are doing is actually unconstitutional mm -hmm. and that, that this is indeed a, it's under the purview of the federal government and not of state governors. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition as we sort of dive into this uh, this immigration or this refugee issue and uh, Governor Pence's decision. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. 
WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at WFIUNews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Claire McInerney. She's joining me today as co-host. She's from WFIU and WTIU and Indiana Public Media and State Impact Indiana and <laughs> all those things. Um, we're talking about uh, Governor Mike Pence's decision. Uh, he's one of, of basically 26 governors who have suspended resettlement programs for Syrian refugees in the wake of the terrorist attacks. We have two guests with us in the studio, Olga uh, Kalanzidu is with us. I have to slow down on your name. It's okay. Uh, Director of Undergraduate Studies for the Department of International Studies at Indiana University, and Brett Bowles, Associate Professor of French Studies at Indiana University, and we're discussing these issues with them. If you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can even follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Before we get back to that issue, we're going to go to a couple of phone callers. Uh, David first. David is from Bloomington. David? Hi, good afternoon. Um, I, had a, I appreciate the comments I've heard so far on the show, and um, I wanted to add uh, another comment that gets in the conversation on the issue of foreign fighters, uh, U.S. nationals, French nationals, Belgian nationals that travel to uh, the Syrian theater are radicalized, come home, and then kind of continue this process. Um, there was a Brookings report out in 2014 that had estimated about 900 French nationals that had gone to the ISIS theater, radicalized, came home. Um, and a recent House Homeland Security report that suggested uh, 250 to 500 Americans have done the same thing, uh, where they've been radicalized, go to fight, come back, uh, and create this kind of cycle. It seems to be something that's being left out of the conversation about where the real threat lies, whether it's re refugees or uh, these uh, Americans or naturalized citizens or born citizens that are uh, radicalizing, learning tradecraft of terrorism and coming home and potentially causing a threat. So I wanted to get um, a reaction from the panelists on that. Right. Thank you. Brett, would you go first? Sure, I can do that. And uh, as I was saying earlier, that it's one of the striking things about these attacks going back to 2012 is that uh, many of the attackers share this common sociological profile of being born in sort of poor ethnic ghettos, um, uh, being arrested and, and going to French prison for uh, sentences. And there's a lot of evidence, a lot of it coming out from research that sociologists uh, based in the UK are doing in France and the UK, showing that the radicalization, or at least the first phase of it, often takes place in prison. Um, and, and this is something that, that, Fran that France certainly needs to address, that Belgium needs to address. Um, it, it's striking, if you just look at the statistics, that something like 60 to 65 percent of the long-term prison population in France is generally classified as Muslim or Arab, whereas in, in, as a proportion of French society as a whole, they're only 7 to 8 percent. And there's a lot of evidence suggesting that, that Islam is, um, is not properly respected by sort of institutional policies in France. And that leads into sort of the formation of Muslim gangs in prison and a certain phase of radicalization that may then lead uh, young men when they get released to actually go over to the Middle East and come back and commit and commit attacks. So th I think that's a, a very important issue for the, for the French to address and the Belgians to address going forward, uh, in addition to how Muslims are treated sort of in general in society. Okay. Olga, anything to add? Um, no, I think Brad pretty much covered it, but I would like to add that um, it is on those cases then that the, these people coming back to their countries of uh, origin uh, have to be screened. And I, uh, as far as my limited experience has uh, indicated with uh, with knowing about these issues is that a fairly large 
database or maybe profiling has been happening since 9-11 in this country, trying to target, uh, at least from the U.S. perspective, those uh, people who do go uh, to fight abroad. And I And I cannot speak for France, but the UK has had similar uh, responses to that where they track. Mm -hmm. And today I was listening to the news in my own native Greece, and Greece now has a similar uh, process where people are literally stopped at the border Mm -hmm. before they actually uh, go out of the border Mm -hmm. if they they are suspected of this kind of behavior. Uh, that's all. <laughs> David, any follow-up? Well, yeah, I would just add that here in the United States, of course, the Terrorist Screening Center runs the terrorist watch list that's been available since 9-11 to the intelligence community, which, of course, monitors um, suspected uh, people suspected of, of certain activity, and that's the tool that, of course, we use here in the United States. I think I would only add, you know, following up on comments about, you know, xenophobia kind of fueling um, you know, radicalization, whether here in France or in Belgium, I think that's part of it, especially in the French jail example. Uh, but, you know, it's, I think, important to note here in the United States where ideology and propaganda through ideology, where young people are exposed to online sources like um, uh, Dodic Magazine, which is published by ISIS, and, and uh, Inspire Magazine, published by Al-Qaeda, where the Zarneos, for example, learned how to build their uh, weapon of mass destruction. Yeah, that's an important factor, too. There's a very social media aspect mm. to the radicalization as well. But I'll leave it there. Thank you. For all, right. all right. Thanks a lot for your call. We have another caller from Ellettsville. It's Deborah. Deborah? Hello. Um, I didn't get a chance to listen to all the panelists in the whole program, so I don't know how balanced it is. But what I'm hearing is a lot of the same um, things that most people in Bloomington would say, and I have something very different to say, okay? Sure. And um, <laughs> this is um, from a lot of research. Uh, I've, I've not read the Quran, but I've listened to ex-Muslims expose what even moderate Muslims believe, and the whole idea of taqiyya, I think it's called, where they present one thing, but it's really going to be very different. And the history of Islam is a history of violence and a history of taking over the countries that they come into. And the plan is to populate those countries so much so that they are going to be in the majority and they will be able to present and make it happen that Sharia law will be in place. And what have, what's happening in Europe and what's happening in Sweden and is is appalling and there are so many cries for help amongst women who are being raped and children who are being raped and the the um, percentage of it being from Muslims is huge I mean it's like huge so I feel very secure that Governor Pence has said what he said and that there's 26 in my opinion sane people same governors who have also protected their states. Okay, Deborah. And so, so you're you're taking the um, the position, which is a very valid position, that he needs to do this for the safety safety of the state and the citizens of Indiana. Yes. Okay. I don't know if anyone else was representing that viewpoint, but that's we, we, very unpopular. We did but, have well, uh, we had Dan Coates on. We had Dan Coates on earlier on a. So well, Deborah, you're not alone. I saw a poll last night not, that yeah. um, 52% of Americans that were polled feel the same way as you. So it's, it's a very popular opinion yeah. right yeah, now. I think this liberal mentality has gotten Europe into trouble, and it's going to get us into trouble. And I would go a step further to say that I think it's um, a plot. It's a conspiracy. It's from a 1% who rule the world, and it's in our dollar bill, the New World Order. And the new world order will be a military state, a military government, a one-world government, a one-world money system, um, a one-world even, you know, philosophy. So All right. I think it's coming to that because they're going to create a crisis so that they can take over. They're going to take away our guns. I mean, that's what they did in France, and that's why the French couldn't defend themselves. Deborah, I'm going to let uh, Olga respond. 
thank you for your comments, Deb. Um, I think they're very valid, and um, I certainly do not discount them at all. Um, however, I want to talk a little bit about violence in religion and put it a little bit in historical perspective. Um, all three major religions in the world, and many others, um, have had episodes of violence and fundamentalism, and they have had groups that have done harm to other people. So I don't think what we're seeing today is very unique. Uh, it is a product of our times, uh, and you might be right um, in your interpretation of it. However, I don't think that ascribing to every uh, Muslim person the same uh, tag as a violent person does no, justice. Well, no, yes, of course, but um, does justice to a huge segment of the population. I come from a Mediterranean country with its own problems. I am not saying we're not xenophobic. Uh, we have our own understanding of what a foreigner is. And I also come from a country that was mandated by the great powers after First World War uh, to uh, incorporate and include a very sizable Muslim minority because everything was based on religion back in those days. I am not also going to say that we don't have problems, but we coexisted, coexisted and we still do, uh, much to the dismay of a lot of Europeans who cannot really um, tolerate uh, any other uh, nationality sometimes that is based on different religion. So I will say that a little bit of historical perspective helps in this particular case and it will help us put things in a little bit more perspective when it comes to individuals and not sort of striking a broad brush and putting it everything, uh, ascribing everything to religion. Yes, okay. well, I appreciate your comments, and I agree with you. I want to bring out two points. Oh, Deborah, we're going to work. The Christian very, very quickly. were not allowed in from Syria. They were not allowed in. Mm. And uh, that Saudi Arabia doesn't take in their own Muslim brethren. That is a problem. That right. is a problem that has been um, pointed out in the refugee crisis that right. is unfolding right now. Okay, Deborah, thanks a lot. We appreciate the call, and you brought a different perspective. We appreciate that. All right, thank you. Okay. I want to circle back, um, talking about refugees. Um, right now, we're at a some sort of stalemate here in the United States. Obama had said that we would take 10,000. In the grand scheme of things, how is this refugee crisis that's been going on for a few months going to change now with um, the attacks in France? Well, um, well, let's let's put a couple of numbers there. Mm -hmm. First of all, there are about 4.5 million uh, Syrian refugees and about 60, I think, million refugees worldwide. So, and from those 4.5 million, at least 600,000 has passed have passed through Mediterranean borders, and most of them are now bottlenecked at the border areas, trying to be processed through other European countries. So we in the United saying, uh, States saying we're going to get 10,000 refugees, it's, it's a laughable number uh, with the resources we have and the open society that we uh, declare that we have. Um, in terms of the recent Paris attacks, um, and I'm bringing up again the panel that we had in the School of Global and International Studies and one of our faculty and an ex-diplomat um, mentioned that there have been actually more casualties among um, Muslims uh, by terrorists and by ISIS than among Europeans. So let's put that out there for what is Exponentially worth. more. Yes, yeah. exponentially more. So in terms of these people actually <clears throat> coming to Europe, uh, they will exacerbate an already very tense situation in countries such as Greece, Italy, and to a lesser extent right now, Spain. So we're going to see people being stranded, um, islands that cannot uh, actually accept more refugees are uh, going to be stretched, um, and resources are not going to be available. So we're going to have to see 
a large number of these people put temporarily in camps in a country such as mine that has no capacity for these uh, camps, um, even with the help from the uh, United uh, Nations um, and the refugee organizations. And we're gonna see a very difficult life for people being stuck in limbo in camps. We have a, a short clip from President Obama who actually talked a little bit about this uh, earlier this week. In terms of refugees, it's clear that countries like Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, which are already bearing an extraordinary burden, cannot be expected to do so alone. At the same time, all of our countries have to ensure our security. And as President, my first priority is the safety of the American people. And that's why even as we accept more refugees, including Syrians. We do so only after subjecting them to rigorous screening and security checks. We also have to remember that many of these refugees are the victims of terrorism themselves. That's what they're fleeing. Slamming the door in their faces would be a betrayal of our values. Our nations can welcome refugees who are desperately seeking safety and ensure our own security. We can and must do both. The president was said a lot of the same things that I think you were alluding to and some of the things you said. And so you mentioned, Olga, that 10,000 refugees is kind of a drop in the bucket of how many we have, but it's a, a huge thing that our government is looking at. Um, last night, the House passed by a large margin this bill that says we'll stop the program um, until we kind of look at the mm -hmm. um, the strategy of accepting them. But, you know, we still need to hear from the Senate and then, you know, the president can weigh in. But, you know, what was your take on that House bill that, that passed? Well, the House can can pass bills and wait. Um, and again, it's going to take 18 to 24 months for these people to come uh, through. And now it's going to take 24 to 36 months for um, women and children um, who are devastated to, to come through. Uh, so I'm going to lie if I say I don't agree with the House of Representatives. Uh, in, in their take. I do understand that issues of national security has to be taken into consideration, but I find it hard to believe, and I think that is a comment that I will leave to Brad because he made it about how the terrorists are gonna come into the United States. So I'm gonna pass the ball to you, because <laughs> that was your idea. Yeah, just a, a little bit of a response to the, the previous caller. Um, you know, the terrorists who, who want to come into the United States and, and uh, attack us are not going to sort of go through the process and the vetting that legitimate refugees would. I mean, they would come on student visas or mm -hmm. some, some other short-term way of getting into the country um, more easily. And just to, to move back to Europe and to give a little bit of, of perspective on the, the number of 10,000 uh, refugees coming to the U.S., I, I was just looking this morning at some recent um, um, figures for France and for Europe in terms of asylum seekers. And in 2014, France uh, took 64,000 asylum seekers. Now, that, that sounds like a big number compared to the 10,000 for the U.S., but during the same year, 2014, Sweden actually took 81,000 and Germany took 203,000. And in fact, over the last 10 years, uh, in proportion to its overall population, France has seen a sharp decline in the number of asylum seekers. And, and France, among the major European countries, again, in proportion to its population, has the smallest number of asylum seekers coming there. And part of that was because of the way French um, law governing asylum seekers was being applied under the Sarkozy presidency between 2007 and 2012. I, I wanted to just mention quickly that the, the uh, administration of Francois Hollande this summer just passed a sweeping reform bill um, that essentially uh, changed the way France treats asylum seekers, providing for things such as um, uh, monetary stipends, maintaining people who are awaiting, you know, vetting on French territory during the process, the right to um, universal health care, which is a following up on a law that was passed in 2000 in France, the right to have uh, asylum seekers to have members of their immediate families come join them in France, uh, recognizing that family members are often subject to political um, uh, persecution in, in their home countries. So I, I say all this. 
uh, because it'll be very interesting to see how this law is applied moving forward, given the uh, current state of emergency, the suspension of certain constitutional protections in France. And it'll be very interesting to see how other European countries react, particularly Germany and Spain, which have already come up, countries that, as we know, have typically been more open to uh, accepting refugees and asylum seekers, Germany in particular. And they've also been countries that have not sought to criminalize uh, key Muslim practices, as mm -hmm. France, Belgium, and to a lesser extent, Switzerland have. So I think this will be very, very interesting going forward within Europe, but also uh, as a kind of mirror being held up to the U.S. to see what we're doing with our own immigration and asylum seeker policies. We have a caller, uh, Velda from Bloomington. Velda, yes. go ahead. Sure. Here I am. It's a little hard for me to speak, so stop if you can't understand me. Uh, you know, I get the feeling that Americans like to go to war, but they like to forget about all the problems they cause going to war. And much of what we're uh, experiencing now is the result of the invasion of Afghanistan and then Iraq. Well, okay, I'm open to remember what happened then. But I also know that many of the refugees, which were already invading Germany at the time, I can't speak for France, I can only speak for Germany, but I know that they were the products of, they were refugees from these wars. Now, we talk about, oh, we don't want them coming to our country, we don't want to help them, we don't, we're scared of them, we're afraid of them. Well, okay, so are the Germans, so are the French, everybody is afraid of the terrorists. But not all Muslims are terrorists, and not, uh, certainly the refugees coming from these places you can, are probably mostly not terrorists either. We do have a responsibility to them because we created the problems that are making them flee now. That's all I have to say about it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Vela. I think she's uh, really taking us back to a little bit of history of how this, this influx of refugees began. Mm -hmm. Somebody give us some perspective. Olga? Um, well, as much as I can try to yeah, give perspective. Yeah. I mean, the numbers, um, are, the numbers have shot way up in the last few years. The, the, uh, with regards of, the, um, of what we call the refugee crisis, and I don't think it's a crisis, it's, it's a phenomenon uh, that became a crisis once Europe noticed. Uh, basically, we had a lot of people waiting in one um, part of, of the European Union that was uh, stretched economically and socially, and they had to deal with it. So this this influx of refugees and asylum uh, seekers and migrants in general, economic migrants, has been happening since the 1990s, I would say, um, and before that, but I'm going to focus in the 1990s. Um, we have the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, certain countries, um, are sending more people uh, across the borders. Then we have, um, you know, the Yugoslav Wars. We have other um, historical events happening after 9/11. So we have a continuous um, bellicose behavior in that part of the world that is not necessarily caused by the neighbors of these people. I'm not saying we are not uh, at fault as well, but. That has created a steady stream of people wanting to flee uh, countries that are economically, politically, and socially suppressed and uh, and depressed. Uh, so many of these um, refugees come or migrants come from um, all over the world, from Afghanistan, from Iran. In 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 two thousand eleven, I started research up in my own neck of the woods. And I found that people as far away as the Dominican Republic was coming from uh, this part of Greece. And that's a huge, um, huge part of the global movement of population. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the caller is very right. We have to take um, our own actions into perspective. All right, we have a phone call uh, again. Stepanka is on the phone. She's from Bloomington. Hi. Yes. Um, I just wanted to read from a textbook uh, published in the United States called The Ways of the World. It talks about jihad, as you probably, especially the, in reaction to the caller from Ellettsville. It's often used, um, and it's not really explained properly. It's a struggle and, or striving to please God. And it says on page 
1158, um, in its 20th century political expression, jihad included the defense of an authentic Islam against Western aggression, Western aggression. So I, I could read on saying that, you know, the Western countries uh, have done their own uh, work against um, Islam and Muslim, and as correctly said, uh, you know, other religions have not exactly historically been peaceful. Uh, and just one thing I'd like to calm some of the, the fears about a family like a couple coming here to Indiana with a baby. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how quickly people for, forgot about that image of a drowning baby um, uh, washed away on the shores in Europe. And just from my own experience, I'm a resident alien, and it took me four years to immigrate to this country. So rest assured that the background checks and everything else is very thorough. I was actually sentenced to 18 months imprisonment, and it wasn't good in, in my home country, and it wasn't good enough uh, reason for, for the U.S. State Department to give me uh, a visa to be here. Um, and, you know, even after, after I got here, I still had at least two visits from an FBI agent. And I can assure you again that if you have visits like that, you really uh, are very, very careful about your daily life. And anyway, that's, okay. that's all just comments. Thank okay. you for letting me speak at your show. Thank you. Thank you for calling, Stepanka. Okay, we, I'm afraid we are out of time. I, I, we could have re responded to that and had a lot more to talk about today, but we have run out. Uh, the clock is, is ticking along. Um, I want to thank our guests today, Olga Kalenzidou and uh, Brett Bowles, as, as well as producer Drew Dodlin, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Claire McInerney. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.